Happiness is an inside job. At Happy Healthy You, Connie Bowman helps us find our way with inspiring conversations and healthy ideas for living a whole life in mind, body, and spirit. Happy Healthy You, and now here's Connie. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Happy Healthy You, the podcast. I'm your host, Connie Bowman. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. I'm so glad you're here. This podcast is for you and all of us who care about living whole lives in mind, body, and spirit. We've been doing this for four, five years. Every time I say that, I think I'm going to really check and see how long we've actually been doing it. I think we started in 2013. So it just keeps going and going and going like the Energizer Bunny because I keep hearing from you and you seem to want more. So why not? Let's just keep the conversation going. Before we get into our podcast with our super interesting subject matter and guest. I would just want to give a shout out to Blue Planet Eyewear, our sponsor. I love Blue Planet. Um, I was just in one of my local little gift shops and bookstores where they carry my book, Back to Happy, and they also carry Blue Planet Eyewear. So they're an eco-friendly company and they make really cute readers and sunglasses. And the best part is they give back. They give back to people all over the world that need vision care, vision correction, who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it. It's just really cool. They partner with World Vision, Sea International, Save the Children, different organizations like that, just to make sure they can really get these glasses where they're needed. So I just think they're really cool. So check them out, blueplaneteyewear.com, and use the code CONNIE20, and you'll get 20% off. Pretty cool. So I want to bring in our guest, but let me give you a little bit of an introduction and then we'll bring him on. Um, He has a new book out called An End to Upside Down Thinking. And he had his world, as he says, turned upside down, which as a yoga teacher, that's not a big deal for me, (laughs) in 2016, when he was exposed to some world-changing science He wrote this book, he says, to create a global shift in some scientific and existential thinking. He's a senior member of Sherpa Technology in Silicon Valley, and that's a firm that advises high-tech companies on acquisitions and mergers and business strategies. So he's got a full-time regular gig. He graduated with honors from Princeton University, where he's captain of the tennis team. I also played tennis. Mark, how you doing? Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm great. Thank you for having me, Connie. So an end to upside down thinking. What's so bad about upside down? <laughs> Are you a I yogi? Guess it depends on what kind. <laughs> do you have do yoga you ever... upside down's okay, right? Yoga upside down's okay. Yeah, um, I love all of the material in your book. I mean, I could talk about this stuff forever. In fact, one of the very first interviews I did on this podcast was with the. Um, Oh, National Association for Near-Death Experiences. And I I just, I, I was so fascinated by that subject. And you cover that in this book. So what what is it, what was it that got you in, interested in this material? Before well, as you in- mentioned, my, my day job on the surface seems to have nothing to do with consciousness. I'm a partner at a firm in Silicon Valley. Prior to that, I was an investment banking analyst in New York during the financial crisis. So I've kind of been in the financial business world for a long time. But it was about two years ago that I first became exposed to these topics, and it wasn't 
really by something that I was I was like looking for. I was listening to a health podcast called Extreme Health Radio, and there was a woman who came on who talked about energy and psychic abilities and communicating with the deceased mm-hmm. and all sorts of things that I had never heard of. Really? And so you never heard of any of that? No, I mean maybe in passing, but not in a serious way. It was just no part of my life at yeah. all. So your ears, your ears really perked up. <laughs> well, at first, yeah. it, I would say that it was kind of just interesting. It it didn't yeah. shift anything for me that I can remember. But I remember at the end of that individual episode, the woman Laura Powers said, "Well, I have my own podcast called Healing Powers, where I interview other people who have these experiences or have these abilities." And I remember the name of the podcast, which was Healing Powers. So I turned it on in the car because I was looking for new things to listen to on my drive on the 101 in the Bay Area, which can have yeah. a lot of traffic here. Right. So I just turned on the podcast, and after a few weeks of just letting it play, I got really interested because I realized that there were a lot of people who were independently describing a similar picture of reality, which was not one that I had ever heard of before. Hmm. So then I started to really investigate, and then I realized there was this whole body of science and research and the, the Association for Near-Death Studies, for example, and mm-hmm. way beyond the U.S. government, Princeton, University of Virginia. So I, I had to rethink everything that I thought I knew. It led me to research for a full year where I was working. And then when I wasn't working, all I was doing was reading and researching. And that culminated in my writing the book actually over a few weekends in July 2017. I just felt really compelled to do it. And I just like put all my research on paper. But the reason that I felt compelled to actually write something was that as I was doing the research, Initially, I didn't really talk to people about it because it, it seems so outlandish relative to the, just the communities that I'm a part of. Like sure, people I, have, right. I never heard people talk about those things. But once I felt pretty confident in the, in the science and had different ways of explaining it that I thought would appeal to people with a very traditional background, I was getting positive feedback. And people would tell me that, oh, oh Mark, I remember that conversation we had over dinner and I'm still thinking about it because it's shifting mm-hmm. my, my life. Sure. And people have told me that repeatedly. So I was like, okay, something's going on here. Let me let me just see if I can put it on paper because it seems to be getting through to people and I'm passionate about it. Yeah. So um, let me just ask you, how old are you and were, were you raised with any kind of a spiritual background? I'm 32. I was technically in a Jewish household, but I was not religious at all. If anything, I was rebellious towards anything that, that was in the realm of what you'd call spiritual because I didn't... I didn't see any evidence for those sorts of things, and I was never really exposed to anything beyond scriptures that were written a long time ago. So I just kind of dismissed all that because in my education, I was told to like critique writings gotcha. and to look for evidence. So my journey was very much using that lens, and we happen to be in an era where there's a ton of evidence in new physics, like quantum physics, yeah. that actually points in the same direction as many of the mystical traditions. Pretty cool, pretty cool. So did you have a bar mitzvah, a traditional um, you know, Jewish upbringing? Yeah, yeah, very traditional. But again, I was not. it was not part of the way I thought about existence or yeah. my life. It was like my, I guess, cultural, but it was not... Um, it didn't influence, I don't think, the way I thought about life. Yeah, interesting. Interesting, yeah. Um, you know, they say we're raised up in a certain, with a certain tradition, and we end up going back there. So I'd be curious to talk to you in about 10 or 15 years and see if you, this this particular path might be actually a little God wink to get you back there. So <laughs> who knows? But let's talk about the book. So, so you talk about this, um, the, I guess the, 
upside down thinking is that this materialist view. Can you just talk about that a little bit and tell us what we've been thinking and how we're getting it wrong, maybe? Sure. And, and this materialist perspective is one that I subscribe to. I wouldn't have called it materialism, but now that I've done the research, I realize that's it's a thing. And what it basically says is that the universe started 13.8 billion years ago, where there was some event that we typically call the Big Bang in science, and it filled the universe with physical matter, like atoms, things that you can touch, physical. Mm -hmm. So the basis of reality is physical. And when you have this, all this physical stuff in the universe, you're bound to end up with reactions between those pieces of matter. We call that chemistry. And then when you have enough random chemical reactions, you end up with a self-replicating molecule like DNA, which leads to biology. So we started with matter, then chemistry, now biology. And biology is like a human being that develops a brain. And from the brain, our mind or consciousness or awareness comes out the other side. So the materialist perspective says that matter creates consciousness, and more specifically, a material brain is what creates consciousness. That is the thinking that in my book I'm challenging throughout and argue that it's upside down in that matter doesn't come first. It's instead consciousness that comes first. So rather than putting consciousness at the end, it's first. And that's a big shift relative to the conventional scientific thinking. Yeah, it's a, this is okay. So we're just diving in. <laughs> Let's just do it. Um, so for you, what is the definition of consciousness for you? How would you say it? what it was? Yeah, it's a very difficult term to describe and mm -hmm. define. Ultimately, maybe one that is not definable by way of language because it's not a finite thing and language is limiting. But if we were to think about it just conceptually, I think consciousness is our subjective inner experience. So when I say I'm speaking to you right now, that sense of identity I have, that's not a physical thing. It's like my awareness. That's what I mean by consciousness. Okay. So I looked up the definition of soul and uh, tell me if this rings true. So it's the immaterial essence, animating principle, or actuating cause of an individual life. So how does that, for you, do, how does that jive or, or, uh, or oppose the idea of consciousness? Or does it? Well, I don't use the word soul in the book on purpose because I think different people have different definitions for it. The definition you just described and, and that what I typically hear of the word soul, I think, is very much related to this idea of consciousness. So it is the, the essence or the fundamental identity that we have that is not tied to the physical. So I view the physical body not being the producer of consciousness, but rather being more like the receiver or the vessel for consciousness. So I think there is a strong relationship between this term of consciousness and a soul. Okay. I think so too, but uh, you know, so would you be that guy if we were at a party together, which I, I don't know if we would be, I'm quite a bit older than you, but um, if we were at a party together, could we be in the corner talking about this shit and just like go on and on and on? Would you be that guy? If you wanted to, Connie, I would, I would do it. Because I, I was actually at a party um, a couple weekends ago, and I, I, I just don't want to talk about anything else. I'm like, I want to talk about spirituality and God and how, because God has worked so many, or my soul or whatever you want to call it, my consciousness has has um, just been such a miraculous journey for me that I, I just want to to know about everybody else's journey. So, so let's go on. Let's talk about yours. Um, 
and and let's just imagine we're at a party just talking so it'll be a casual no it's not really either or you talk about this non-dualism um i as a yogi i've studied a little bit of of vedanta and that's that's like ancient ancient non-dual consciousness you know the idea mm-hmm. that we can we can um have these opposing thoughts and ideas and not necessarily have to um squabble about them right <laughs> Right. And that's kind of where I come out with everything, where the basis of all reality is is one underlying consciousness. Yeah. And that's a very non-dual perspective. And what what one might call the soul is part of that broader consciousness. It's just kind of a modulation. Cool. So we can agree there. Let's agree. The modulation. Um, So your first experience uh, where you started to, um, where you listened to that podcast and you found out there were these people that had healing and telepathic and uh, mediumship abilities like what was the fir- your first thought about that after graduating from Princeton having this sort of science based background although you did major in psychology right in your uh, early years that's right that's right and yeah. I, I focused on behavioral economics though so I started off in the economics department switched to psychology so I could do kind of a hybrid but I wanted to do astrophysics I just didn't have time because of tennis. ah okay gotcha okay so you so you knew there was there was something there <laughs> somewhere somewhere deep inside you knew there was something there but when you f- when you first heard about these people with these uh, abilities what were you, what were your first thoughts hmm. I'm, I'm trying to remember back I, I don't think i i didn't have major thoughts in either direction i just thought it was interesting mm-hmm. and then at one point it just kind of hit me wait a second these people are describing things that are actually happening to them mm-hmm. are they lying are they delusional or is something real <laughs> And that's when I, I had to, I felt like I had to investigate. It was really the, the compilation and the accumulation of enough people saying things with a straight face where I couldn't <laughs> reason. I'm like, yeah. wait, they're not all colluding behind the scenes because they don't have any relationship to each other. These are independent accounts. Right. And many of the people came from traditional backgrounds and some they had some catalyzing event in their life where mm-hmm. there was a trauma and then they kind of got pushed into it or they had a mystical experience of their own. And as I got into the research, what I realized was the kind of the central question, and this is what my, my book focuses on, is that in science, we don't even know how a brain could produce a non-physical consciousness. So there's a question that arises, does it produce consciousness at all? And that's what I've come to now think is, is the case, is that the brain isn't producing consciousness, and that's why science hasn't been able to figure it out. Mm. One of the most compelling things for me in my research, because I too, I lost a child when she was six, and I, that was for me the impetus to find out, um, you know, where do we go? Where is she? I knew where she was for six years, and I loved this little girl more than my own life, and um, I wanted to know where she was. And uh, my religion couldn't tell me, and my, um, you know, some of my reading couldn't tell me. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross couldn't help me. I just needed to know where she was. And um, so I, too, started delving into some of these more esoteric teachings. And um, some of the most compelling uh, research I found was uh, like Brian Weiss and some of the children that had consistent stories. Um, have you have you read any of the children's accounts of near-death experiences? Yes, yes, and also children who have who have memories of a previous life, and mm, I have actually mm-hmm. a chapter in my book on that topic mm-hmm. um, uh, from the University of Virginia, where there are children who are describing 
a life that's not theirs. 50 years worth of research, over 2,500 cases, and they have distinct details. And these are kids usually between the ages of two and five years old. Yeah. And it's so, it's so fascinating because they, a lot of the, there's so many similarities, right? It's, it's just amazing. Yes. Yeah. There's similarities in, in that many of the children are describing how they, they died in terms of previous life. But if we're talking about near death experiences, that's a bit different where, where people are describing what happens around the time that their body is basically not functional. Sometimes people are in cardiac arrest and they're, they're actually not technically alive. And their brain's not functioning, and yet they have this very lucid experience of hovering over their body, uh, seeing a mystical being, talking about unconditional love, and then having a life review where they experience their whole life in a flash. They're judging themselves for how they acted. Sometimes they take on basically the eyes of those they affected and feel the pain that they inflicted on somebody, which is totally wild. They see a tunnel, and then they are told that they have a choice to go back in their body, or sometimes they're told they have to go back in their body, and then they're back. And this mm. is children, adults, people from all cultures. Mm, crazy. So there's a there's a movie you may not have seen. I think it was uh, probably before your time, but it was with Meryl Streep and Richard Dreyfuss called Defending Your Life. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> you might want to watch not it. Actually. You might want to watch it. It's fu- First of all, it's funny because Dreyfus is hilarious and Meryl Streep is brilliant, but um, they actually, uh, they, they both die and they have to um, go before the, and have their life review. And they're actually sitting in these comfy chairs and in a theater and they're watching their lives. And obviously Meryl Streep's life was just perfect. She did nothing wrong and she <laughs> was good. And so she got to feel all the love she shared with everybody. But Richard Dreyfus, of course... <laughs> It was a different story. So defending your life, you should watch it. You'd get a kick out of it. Um, so so as you were researching this and you were really trying to find or you were exploring the rational uh, reasons for, for some of this stuff, um, did you have any experiences of your own? Were you able to like talk to a medium who was able to contact someone, say, on the other side or um, I don't know? Did anything interesting happen along the way? Yeah, this was actually a big part of the journey. Initially, when I found out about these things, I said, okay, well, there should be energy workers and psychics and mediums that can do things that I can't explain if that's what the research is showing. So I, I found a whole bunch of people and just kind of did my own personal research. And there were there were people, when I did sessions with them, over the phone, they knew nothing about me, even if they looked certain things up. They were coming up with information that I couldn't reason that they would have known through normal means, and it was happening repeatedly. So that was just confirming the research that I was doing. So did they, any, anybody talk to any of your deceased loved ones? or I talked sh- to one medium. It was actually the part that interested me the least. It was more I was more interested in understanding... Um, like the nature of reality and whether people could know things about me personally. Uh-huh. So I did talk to one medium and it was it was reasonable, like it was kind of vague, but there was nothing in there that didn't make sense to me. Nothing like totally blew me away and it wasn't something that I was like, I, I've really looked into quite as much personally, even though I've researched mediums. Hmm. How about psychics? Do you have any psychics? Yes. Yeah, psychics, <laughs> I would say that's where I spent more of my time and people that, you know, Akashic record readers, I tried all of it just to see what people could come up with. And there was a lot of consistency really? in the things that I was hearing. And these were people that didn't know me. And I was over the phone. Interesting. So did, did any uh, psychic scare you or give you any information that you thought was just uncannily accurate? There were a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't scare me, but it was just like, a, it was chilling. 
to yeah. know that someone could know specific things. And so one example was a medically focused medium who could just know things about your health. And a few weeks before I had called her, there was an irritation I had around the area where I shave on my jawline. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure what was going on. Eventually it went away. So by the time I talked to her, it wasn't there anymore. She had me go in front of the mirror. She goes, I want you to go in front of the mirror. And she had me point to the exact location where this thing was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Amazing. then they gone away. So like she couldn't have looked that up online or anything. It wasn't something she could have found. I've never spoken to this person before. Crazy. And she has me in, in front of the mirror pointing to this location. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's exactly where the, this irritation was. Mm. So how do you make – how do you uh, find the scientific uh, reasoning for, for any of this? So if you think of consciousness in that picture we talked about where the materialist perspective says matter creates consciousness and, right. I'm, and I and others are saying, no, consciousness is first. Consciousness is fundamental and exists beyond space and time. What a psychic or a medium is able to do is kind of access this, this field or, or the broader consciousness. And there's an analogy I really like from Dr. Bernardo Castro, and I, I mentioned it initially in the preface of my book, but then beyond as well. Where if you think of reality as being like a stream of water, where water represents consciousness, each of us is like a whirlpool within that broader stream. So we're having a localized experience, but we're fundamentally made of water, i.e. consciousness. So if you imagine that your individual whirlpool opens up a little bit to allow you to access water from different parts of the stream, that would explain uh, how people can access information beyond space and time. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) So, technically, we should all be able to have these um, powers, or do we even call them powers, these abilities? Right. It's interesting. You call them powers, and you use the term esoteric before. Yeah. I think a lot of these words are charged based on our society's definition of what is normal, and that's based on the materialist perspective. So, I think that these things are natural abilities that we just are not harnessing in the current era. Uh And I do think that we all have them. And many of the studies I reference in my book are done with, with everyday people. And there is typically a statistical effect. So it's not like people are, are 100% accurate, but they're above chance. accurate. And who knows what people could do if we learned how the brain is, is kind of receiving or filtering consciousness. If we could enhance the brain in a way to enhance these, these talents that we all have. Right. And if we just were aware of them, how we might be able to use them. And if we normalize the idea of having these abilities, you know, maybe we wouldn't have so many uh, mental blocks. I think you're totally right. And that's one of the many reasons I wanted to write this book is that I think the ideas are typically considered to be taboo for some reason. Sure. I don't fully understand why. And to put the scientific evidence behind it, hopefully will give credibility to those people who have had experiences but feel they're just not comfortable speaking about them in a mainstream circle. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you go back to ancient um, sacred scripture, um, you know, the the Hebrew Bible, right? There's all those prophets and they were all talking to God and, you know, making connection to the other side, or maybe the, the veils were thinner back then. I don't know, but they were definitely, you know, uh, Abraham, there were all those, I don't know if any of these are coming back to you. I'm sure you had to study all the, the Hebrew, uh, (laughs) prophets, right? (laughs) Probably Elijah. Yeah. It it sounds like people who are, you know, 
mediums or channels yeah, where yeah. they are getting information. I've talked to channels. I've seen channels live where they're basically overtaken by something, and it's not them that's speaking. It's very clear that something's happening. Mm. Um, but it's sort of like this tapping in, almost like tuning into a different radio station. Right. That's actually how one channel, Paul Selig, who's written channel books where he's literally dictating what he's hearing. Mm -hmm. um, he That's how he describes it, is kind of tuning into different stations sure. in, on the consciousness spectrum. Sounds like you did a little of that when you wrote your half of your book in such a short period of time. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I wrote, it came out very quickly, and I think it was a combination of having done a lot of the research, and then who knows what else allowed me to do it so quickly. Well, as an athlete, you played tennis, right? You've You've probably experienced that state of flow that has been described by elite athletes. You know, you just get in the flow. And for me, that's the same thing, I, I feel like, right? I think you're right. Yeah. I think it's very similar. And I wish I knew then what I know now about consciousness because I probably would have been a much better tennis player. Oh, I but. know. <laughs> totally. Well, you can, always, you can always channel that. You know, I find that just meditation and uh, being more present has improved my tennis game. Uh, so much so yeah yeah all right so um let's get into some of the chapters what what was your favorite i guess we, you write about all these different things um mediums and uh psychic abilities and past lives and pets how pets can tune into their it's it's all very interesting what was your most um ex what, what really lit you up the most as you were writing this book i think near-death experiences Mm. It is such an important phenomenon that is is now being reported all the time because our resuscitation technology has gotten so much better in the last few decades. But it's been reported since the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Plato talked about it. Yep. People have had these experiences where they're in other realms and then they come back in their body and they're forever changed typically. Mm -hmm. So this is an area that has to be studied by science, I think. that's It's kind of being swept under the rug. We're fortunate that the University of Virginia has picked this up, and they have some very smart scientists who are looking at it. But, I mean, the implications of the life review, it, that is totally world-changing. If that's what happens after we die, if there's a life review and really what matters in this physical realm, it's all about how we treat each other, and that's what we're judging ourselves on, and all these other material things are just kind of a show. Think about what that could do mm. for an individual and for society. Totally. Kind of makes the golden rule a lot more important. <laughs> it makes it very real. It makes it yeah. very real, right? Especially if you're going to experience everything, all the hurt that you have put out there. Oh, mm -hmm. Crazy, crazy. So how has, has writing this book changed your life? Like, what, what, Have you made any changes now that you're, you're uh, seeing things from the right side up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's been a, a gradual process since I realized that my old materialist perspective was wrong and that, or it just needed to be recontextualized or to, to switch the role of consciousness and switch the role of my own identity. Because I used to think that I was a body that has a consciousness. Mm -hmm. Rather, now I think I'm a consciousness that's experiencing the physical through a body. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you take my old perspective of I'm a body that has a consciousness, then I am physical first and foremost. That means when the physical dies, the consciousness is gone. Under that perspective, which is the prevailing perspective in much, much, much of Western society and also much of science, you can't find meaning in that. Any meaning is a rationalization by definition because your memories are gone once you're dead. Mm. And I know it sounds horrible, but that, I, I don't think there's any 
way around that that implication if you buy into the idea that you're a body first and foremost. Mm. So that has sw- switched everything for me because I used to think that life had no meaning. And I understood the materialist implications that you couldn't actually find meaning unless you wanted to rationalize. And I didn't want to rationalize. So I used to struggle with things. If anything that was good that happened or something bad happened, why does it matter? It doesn't matter in the end. Now, at the very least, if there's some continuation of consciousness, that is by definition more meaning than the old worldview. And then if we think about the near-death experience and the life review and, and things beyond, uh, then there does seem to be a lot of meaning. So that's been a big shift for me. So were you afraid of death prior to writing this book? Maybe under the surface I was, but because I was, I was so little... <laughs> I can, I can tell you that I was. I remember being six years old and realizing all of a sudden that my parents could die. And, and I remember the day, I remember where I was, and I was like, oh my gosh, my, I, must, I don't know if I watched something on TV that, I, I think Love Story, I don't know if you remember that, that story um, with Ali McGraw and Ryan O'Neill. That was out right around the time I was growing up, and, and that was one of the first movies that really hit home that people people die and it's really sad. And um, prior to that, I hadn't had any deaths in my family. And so then I started, I remember being six years old and really being afraid of death. And, you know, I went to church and I knew what, what the church was telling me that, you know, we go on as a Christian, I learned that uh, we, our life goes on. So consciousness does not end at death. And um, we learned about Jesus and his, you know, rising from the dead and stuff, but still, I I couldn't quite wrap my brain around that, right? And so there was a big fear of death. Um, um, but then as I explored some of these things, like you, I, um, I have a, a, a lot less of that fear. I still think there's a mystery. We don't really know what happens after we pass to the next realm. But some of these NDEs and, um, yeah, some of these extra sensory capabilities can certainly clue us in, right? Right. I think they can clue us in. And we have to take this this little leap to say that, well, the person didn't actually die, so we can't say with 100% certainty that this is what happens when you actually do die. But yeah. the person's body is not functional, and yet they're having these lucid experiences, which I think is a, it's re- very reasonable to suggest that these are the beginning stages of what happens when you die. But there's, like I mentioned, there's usually a tunnel that people see, and then they, there's like... They don't go, they don't take that extra step, and they come back in their body. So what happens after that, we don't fully know. Mm, yeah, it's just a mystery. <laughs> but we can, look, we can look at some of the sacred scriptures, and we find a little bit of um, metaphor, perhaps, metaphor, perhaps, to uh, explore a little more deeply. And I think, I think a lot of the, I just feel like a lot of it is in our, unconscious mind a lot of it is already in there we just have to mine for it any right any thoughts on that (laughs) well you know i do think you're right if if we consider basically everything not basically but everything to be consciousness then all of this information throughout space and time Mm -hmm. it's all accessible technically Mm. how we can access that I, i don't know some people seem to be more talented than others people who are talented channels or mediums or psychics um but it seems like the information is there if we can learn how to tap into it. You mentioned the Akashic Records. Um, did anybody give you any information about Akashic Records or tell you 
tell you what anything about your own? It's something I, that has come up in a few sessions with people um, where they can they're able to tap into this broader field and, and certain people call it the Akashic record. Yeah. I have a feeling that other people are probably tapping into it and maybe just not calling it that. Yeah. And I think that's just the broader stream of consciousness. That's how I view it. Yeah. What is your understanding of the Akashic records? It's, it's this notion that all information in the universe that's ever occurred and ever will occur exists. And it's a matter of being able to like pull out the record from this broader field of consciousness and access the information. That's how I understand it. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's pretty fascinating stuff. So you mentioned that uh, this has changed your view. How has it changed your heart learning about all of this? Like, what are your relationships like? And um, are you, I don't know, I'll just leave it, leave it there. How, are you, how have your relationships and your connections um, in your personal life changed after learning about this? So well, I think it's still shifting. Because I had a lot of training in the more conventional realm, and even learning mm -hmm. about these concepts doesn't change everything overnight. I'm asking so you I that think, because you're 32 and you're in that this this generation of upcoming. Um, I don't know. Are you too old for a millennial, or are you a millennial? I don't know. I'm <laughs> I, I don't like putting people in boxes, but <laughs> I have a couple of kids who are around that age, and and I I don't know. I would like to see you guys have a more um, rich spiritual life and a and a, more of a connection to spirit and um, and a lot of that I think has just been thrown out with this rational materialist viewpoint and um, I think it just gives like you said there's no meaning in, to that so um, talk a little bit more about your relationships like you say it's still it's still emerging but yeah I would say it's emerging. And it, it's, it's a process of integrating this new understanding of who and what we are and what reality is and, and the notion that we are fundamentally interconnected. So even though we seem like we're separate people, that there's a connection that we don't see with our eyes. Yeah. And I think that affects all relationships because if you see others as a version of yourself, there's inherently a lot more compassion yeah. And desire to be altruistic because altruism is actually a form of selfishness if we think about this perspective, that mm -hmm. you're helping yourself. If that other person is just a version of you at the level of consciousness, then when you help them, you are helping yourself because you're both consciousness. So that is something that I think is, is starting. I'm starting to see that more and more with just all relationships. Mm, good. That's a really big discovery and jesus said that right love your neighbor as yourself you got to love yourself first if you expect to be able to love your neighbor which comes first yeah that's and a huge I think one. it's a tough one in this era because there's so much pressure on people that self-love that's what comes up a lot in the life review and in other reports but in this society it's a difficult one it really is there's no reason why we shouldn't Hmm. Yeah. So let's see, where can we go from here? You talked about the, um, let's talk about heart and, and mind. You, you do talk about the heart math Institute, right? You did some research into their work. That's pretty fascinating, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? It, yeah, it is. And I, and we have to wonder what the role of the heart is. There's a lot of talk about the brain and consciousness, but does the heart have a role in consciousness? There's a study in the chapter um, on precognition, and precognition is the ability to know the future before it happens. In some cases, people are sensing the future, meaning their bodies are consciously responding to a future event 
mm-hmm. before anyone knows that event will occur. One of the organs that seems to respond to the future is the heart. So the, the study will, uh, there's a computer that randomly generates a picture. And sometimes the picture is very arousing, like it's an erotic image or a violent image, something that we know will stimulate the body. And then other times it's like a peaceful picture of a mountain or a river. The person who's looking at the screen doesn't know what's going to come up. The experimenter doesn't know what's going to come up because it's randomly generated. And it's just a a repeating pattern of of different types of pictures. What the experimenters find is that the heart is one of the organs that responds seconds before anyone knows what picture will be shown. Mm. Now, how does that work? The heart is more powerful. It's the most powerful energy that we have, this beating heart that we have right in the center of our body. How, to me, that's such a miracle. It's just, I don't understand it. Do you understand it now any better? No, I don't. <laughs> I, have, I have a greater appreciation for its role yeah. in, in many things. So this is another really interesting area. Uh, organ transplant donors mm. and recipients. Yep. If we think that the brain is totally responsible for all consciousness, then it shouldn't be the case that when someone gets the heart of another person that they start to take on that person's memories or personality traits, and yet they do in some cases. So it's suggesting yeah. that the heart is, is actually transferring something, and we don't really understand it. And I'll give a, an anecdote that I mentioned in the book, and this is in Chapter 2. There is a little girl who gets a heart transplant, and we'll call her Jane. And Jane... Um, got her heart from, we'll call her Sarah. Jane didn't know that she got the heart from Sarah, but she started to have nightmares of being murdered. And it got to the point where her mother sent her to a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said, wait a second, these are very vivid memories. They realized that Jane, she got her heart from Sarah, and Sarah had been murdered. And they said, wait a second, is she, are these memories of Sarah's murder and murderer? So Jane starts to tell the psychiatrist of the details of the murderer, and apparently they were able to track down the murderer based on the descriptions in the dream, which suggests that the memories were transferred via the heart organ. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's mind-blowing right there, right? It is. It, it totally is. I don't think we understand it, but it's suggesting that the heart is playing some role, and the role is not limited or localized to an individual's body. Yeah. So, I mean, what that breaks so many of our paradigms. Yeah, for sure. It, we've all had the experience of just thinking of someone and then you get a call from them or um, those synchronicities that happen. Um, we'll be thinking of something and then a song comes on the radio that is like the exact words that you were just thinking. Um, what what do you make of those uh, synchronicities and... Um, crazy coincidences that happen in our lives. Well, that's actually one of the things that started to happen to me a lot when I first got into this and kind of Mm -hmm. opened up that there are crazy synchronicities. And I found this to happen to other friends who have kind of gotten into this sort of like me and even people who have started to read my book and they told me that things have opened up. I would have told you before a few years ago that those are chance occurrences that, Oh, well Mm -hmm. there's no real rhyme or reason to how the universe works. It's all random. And of course, when you have a random universe, sometimes you're going to get them. Like they're coincidence. They're, they're beyond coincidence. Uh, now I, I tend to say that there are instances that are beyond chance that I don't fully understand. I think when we look at the quantum reality that we're in, and this is one of the distinctions that I draw in the book, is that we see the world in a very Newtonian way, meaning you drop an apple and it falls to the ground. 
right. gravity. It's it's a very it's a good approximation for how reality works. But when we get to the very small scales of reality, we see that there are all these counterintuitive phenomena. One of which is called entanglement, which shows that there are hidden connections in the universe. So the, the basic study, and I'm simplifying this dramatically, is that if you spin one particle in one place, if there's another particle that's very far away physically, the other one has a correlated change at the same instant. So you affect one, you affect the other instantaneously, which Einstein totally freaked out about this because he thought the speed of light was the fastest that anything could go. And yet here we're having something that's instantaneous, which is faster than the speed of light. It is suggesting that there is some interconnectedness that's going on in the universe. And you have to wonder if the synchronicities that you're talking about are some, in some way related to this fabric of the reality that we're in where there is a quantum connection. Mm. And someone sent me something yesterday, uh, perhaps it was a synchronicity, uh, about Einstein. Uh, he has some lost letters, and this is one letter he wrote to his daughter about uh, all of the work that he did, um, the most important thing, and what it was all about, what it all came down to was really love. And um, his he, he was expressing his love for his daughter, but he said this whole theory of relativity, relativity is really all about love. And um, that's simplifying it a lot. But um, when you come down to, right down to it, uh, and you start looking at this quantum soup that we are all a part of, you realize how we are all, you just use the word interconnectivity. We are so interconnected. How can this not have broad implications for world peace, right? Yeah, yeah, and I do discuss that as well in the book because I think that's the the biggest implication for all of this beyond the notion that we have these abilities to tap into consciousness and be psychic and talk to the deceased. I think the notion that we are interconnected is the biggest implication because that's our, our society is based on an assumption, I think, of separation. Mm-hmm. Most of societies, is, there's a belief that we are separate individuals because that's the way it looks with our eyes. It appears to be that way. But if it's not that way, then a lot of the behaviors we see going on in the world do not make any sense. So if we can shift the perspective of reality, I don't know if that can happen. I hope it can. If we can shift the perspective of reality, I think many of those behaviors would stop because they become irrational. Mm. Well, I think a lot of your research and the fact that you're reaching out to your uh, your people, <laughs> your age group, um, hopefully this will have a ripple effect. And, um, you know, there are a lot of groups that you can link up with that are doing fantastic work, like the Institute of Noetic Science, um, this HeartMath Institute, um, and just some of the movements for peace and, um, you know, interconnectivity, like this blue planet eyewear. <laughs> the, I mean, people are realizing that we are global. We are not just a nation of, um, you know, singular, separate Americans. We are a global world. There's no going back. So, yeah, um, it's, it's really, really important. Yeah. And I'm uh, hoping that the book will have that effect and we'll see. I, I would love for it to, to definitely get in the hands of younger generations, but also in the hands of many influential people, because if, if the people of influence in society start to wake up to the reality that we're in, and it's not the one that we're conventionally taught, that will affect the way that they influence in their circles. Sure. 
And I think if you go to your parties and I go to my parties and we keep having these conversations and, and don't let people be freaked out by it, but really realize that there, there's a lot more to us than our physical, our physical presentation. We are much more than that. So thank you for this book. An, yeah. an end to upside down thinking, dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. I just love that you're doing this. And um, I would like to see you go back to synagogue and check it out again. But you know, <laughs> in your own time, because I do think I do think that 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 exploring the sacred traditions is going to help you mine the unconscious for some of these um, rich, uh, the rich things that you are actually seeking. And you'll find out that you, you are, you know, you probably already know this. You already know this. I shouldn't be giving you my, <laughs> my little mommy speech, but, um, where can we find more information about you? And I know you have a podcast coming out. So how can we watch for all of that and find all of your information in your book and, um, where you're going to be speaking next and all that. My website, which is my name, Mark Gober, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com, has information on the book. It also has information on media and media appearances. And my podcast, which is not out as of the date of this recording, but it should be out hopefully within the next few months. And in that podcast, I interview many of the scientists and practitioners that I discuss in the book. So I think it's going to be really interesting to people who, who want to hear it from the scientists and the people themselves rather than just read my quotes of them. Yeah. What's the name of your podcast? Still to be determined. Okay. But all that information will be releasing um, through my website and also probably through many other marketing channels. So we'll keep an eye out. Well, this book is a fascinating read and I love that you've given all the scientific basis and um, what did St. Paul say? (sighs) Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love, right? So hope this all I hope it all leads to love for you and for everyone <laughs> who's you. listening because um I hope so too in the end even Einstein agreed that love is the most important energy that there is so thanks for this conversation I really appreciate it thanks so much Connie. it was fun I appreciate <laughs> all it all right have a happy healthy day you too <laughs> all right see ya would you do with an elephant in your room? Hey guys, it's Connie Bowman. I'm excited to share with you my favorite listeners that I have written a children's book called There's an Elephant in My Bathtub. It's a sweet book for children ages about two to seven about a little boy who after leaving his animals all around the house comes home from school to find there's a safari a party happening in his room. What it really is, is a dad with a wild and fun imagination who creates a sweet story out of something every parent eventually encounters. Toys all over the house. There's an Elephant in My Bathtub will be a book to read over and over again with your child. It's now available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. For more information, visit the Connie Bowman Facebook page or click on the book page at ConnieBowman.com. Thanks, and happy healthy holidays.